Welcome to the Direct Response Marketing Magic Podcast. Seth Green is a five-time best-selling author, speaker, and nationally recognized direct response marketing expert who is CEO of one of the fastest-growing direct response marketing firms in the country. To get free access to a download of his new book, Podcast Marketing Magic, and a free live training webinar that will show you how you can use a podcast to attract new customers and referrals like magic, simply register at www.ultimatemarketingmagician.com. On the podcast, Seth brings together some of the most cutting-edge thought leaders in the world to share with you how they grow their businesses and how you can too. And now, here's your host, Seth Green. Welcome to the Direct Response Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Seth Green. Today, I have the good fortune to be joined by Stephen Shapiro of StephenShapiro.com. Stephen is an author, speaker, and innovator. Thank you so much for joining us. We are excited to learn more about you. I'm thrilled to be here, Seth. Awesome. Now, you are also a Hall of Fame speaker, a magician, and a whole bunch of other things. Let's go back in time a little bit. How did you get started? So... I think I was destined to be a professional speaker because in college, uh, basically the only A that I got other than one course in probability was uh, public speaking. So I think I was sort of destined to this. But I, I started off my career uh, in management consulting. I was started off with Arthur Anderson, which became Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. was with them for 15 years and ended up creating a 20,000-person practice uh, around innovation there. And... Uh, after doing that for 15 years, I got a book deal and published the book. The book was published, left Accenture, and started doing my own thing. And that's been 15 years I've been doing my own thing. Absolutely incredible. How do you build a 20,000-person team? With a lot of help. I mean, it was one of those things where the work that I was doing previously, I had sort of this existential crisis because it was all about efficiency and people were losing jobs based on the work that I was promoting and so I searched for some people inside the company who would be interested in creating something substantial around growth and innovation, and the timing just happened to be perfect. There was a change in guard, and uh, it was really just about a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and you know, it's not like I magically created this thing. It was really you know, other people who you know, used their influence and their power to create it, and I then sort of was swept up on their coattails to... Uh, bring forth the innovation content that we've developed. Awesome. That sounds incredible. Great coattails to be on. Um, how did the book deal come about? Tell us about the book. Well, when you're you know, leading a 20,000-person practice, publishers are interested because they look at the potential for sales. So while I was at Accenture, I actually got the book deal. The book deal was brokered by Accenture. And in fact, if you look at the copyright for my first book, Accenture is listed as the copyright owner. So uh, it's one of those things where, it's, to me, it's about leverage. I mean, I, I guess one of the, when, when people ask me for some career advice and they're thinking about leaving a company to do something else, they say, look, have you really figured out how to leverage your existing relationships? Because I really do believe that the key to everything is uh, who we know and how we leverage those relationships. And 
that's uh, that's how I got the book deal. It was I wouldn't it would have been much more difficult if I weren't at a clincher. Of course. Um, so talk about the book for our listeners who haven't. Who, shame on them. Don't know about it. Haven't read it. Well, the first book is a good snoozer. Uh, it was called Twenty Four Seven Innovation. Three hundred pages of uh, good sleep inducing. Uh, uh, you know, heavy reading, but it was my first book. I'm proud of it just because it, it was a good amount of work. And then I've had books since then. So Goal Free Living, which is a book on how to have a life without goals. Uh, that was my second book. I then self-published a little book of big innovation ideas. And then my last two books were The Penguin. One is called Personality Poker, which is actually comes with a deck of cards. And it really is how do you quickly understand how you contribute to and detract from the success of an organization, and then my latest book is Best Practices Are Stupid, which was also published by Penguin. Um, I lost count. How many books is that? That would be five. Five. You are a prolific author. How has the writing and marketing process of those books helped further your practice now that you're not at a giant organization? I think you know, it, it, it's key to be getting your message out there in as many different ways as possible. So I was fortunate enough. Look, part of this, I will admit, I, I was a little lucky. So 20 years ago when I decided to focus on innovation, I chose a topic which at the time wasn't very popular. People never used the term innovation. And if they did, it was the equivalent of, of R&D and product development. So I chose a topic you know, a decade or more before it became popular. So I was able to build some momentum around that. Uh, I started blogging in 2004. I had a website in 2000. I had started blogging actively in 2004. That was great. So, I mean, I think, you know, books are just one of the many ways to get your message out. And, you know, it gives you credibility. Uh, but I think the key thing is just, it, especially these days, publishers won't publish a book unless you have a platform. And so the key is, not to look at the book as the thing which is going to make or break you, but rather to figure out how do you create a following so that you can get a book deal, not the other way around. That is excellent advice that um, we talk about all the time with our authors um, if they want traditional publishing, obviously. It used to be that the publisher would help would have a plan for you, a marketing plan for getting the book out there and how they were going to use the book and market the book to help make you famous in your industry. And now... It's the other way around. They won't even look at a book unless you've already got a platform, a following, and a marketing plan of how you're going to do it, and they expect the authors to do a whole lot more, the majority of the work. Yeah, here's the way I look at it these days. is Whether you self-publish or you commercially publish, unless you're a very well-known author, all the work is going to be on your shoulders. And the only difference is that they will take care of some of the more mundane tasks uh, such as the copywriting and all of that, and you may or may not get an advance as opposed to having to pay someone to do the book. But uh, to me, the, the the thing which I like about commercial publishing isn't the marketing and all that. It's just it, it, it still has some level of gravitas. And I think today especially, you know, where anybody can publish a book at any time, personally, I think the role of commercial publishers is becoming more important, even though I know in the eyes of many they're becoming less relevant. I think commercial publishers are more important now because when you have millions of books that are published every year, I think it's useful to at least have had a vetting process to say, you know what, this is a book that we're willing to put our reputation and our name and our money behind. Uh, and I think commercial publishers could play a more important role in the future. I may be wrong, but I, I think they're 
think there's still no, extremely valuable. No, I think that's valuable. an excellent point. I think that um, endorsement, for lack of a better term, as more and more um, books get printed, that endorsement's going to mean more because there's as the barrier to entry has gotten so much lower, for lack of a better term, there's a lot more junk out there. So things that rise to the top will that 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 vetting process will help. Yeah, and and I also think look, you can self-publish and, and be wildly successful with that too. I, I think you could go down either path. I think they're just different paths. And I think though, if you look at the percentage of self-published books that do well versus the, the percentage of commercially published books that do well, I would guess that the commercially published books as a, on the whole, percentage-wise, do much better than self-published books, which 95% of them or 99% of them sell less than 1,000 copies over the life of a book. And so you know, that, that just gives you a little bit of statistic there. Yeah, I would agree 100%. Talk about your practice now. Talk about what you're doing and who you're working with and how you're helping. So I focus solely on innovation, more on the cultural aspects of innovation, about collaboration. Uh, so it's not about the technology. And so what I do, a lot of my work are keynote speeches. I'll go in for an hour, hour and a half. Sometimes with some of my clients, I will spend a full day with them. And we'll just talk about how do we create a culture of innovation inside the organization. And in some cases, they'll want to follow up, so I'll do some advisory work. I have some really cool products that I've developed, too. For example, Personality Poker is a card game that I developed, which some clients have uh, had all their employees in the company go through it, and they use this as a way to help people understand how to communicate with them and how they're going to contribute to innovation. Uh, but the thing which I'm most excited about is something which we – came out with, been, it's been over two years in development, and it's just been so powerful. Uh, I think one of the challenges that people have as a professional speaker is you leave the stage and people forget you very quickly. And so what I realized is I need to create something that's going to keep people engaged in my content after I leave the stage. And so I developed this thing called the 30-Day Innovation Challenge, which is a mobile gaming app which uh, basically for 30 days after I'm done, every person who is in the audience will get a text message or an email with a link to a question. And it's a question about something I talked about in my speech. And they will get points for how accurately and how quickly they answer. And this, so there's a leaderboard, and each of the questions has a one-minute video that describes why it's the right answer and why the other ones are the wrong answer. So it's micro-learning done with gamification on a mobile phone. and it's, That is really it's, cool. Yeah, we've had, I mean, some of my clients, we've had 95% participation of busy executives, 95% participation every day for 30 days. That, to me, is unheard of. That's amazing. Sign me up. How do I get that? <laughs> uh, just go to 30dayinnovationchallenge.com, and you can learn all about it. Awesome. With all of the, uh, who is your ideal client? Uh, anybody who is serious about innovation and I, you know, is probably struggling with innovation to some degree. So uh, somebody who's really hungry uh, to, and again, I don't think of innovation as new products. I really think of it as a cultural shift where the company becomes is, is agile enough to stay relevant. And so I work with mainly larger clients, you know, larger companies, uh, but I've got to say some of my best experiences have been with you know, smaller, multi, you know, a few billion dollar companies uh, as opposed to the hundred billion dollar companies where 
I see the impact in a much greater way. So, but basically any company that's hungry for innovation. Hungry for innovation. Um, let's talk, how do you keep innovating? Um, how do you stay on the cutting edge? That's a fantastic question. Because <laughs> here's one of the challenges I believe is that expertise is the enemy of innovation. And so the problem is if you're an expert on innovation, it's very difficult for you to innovate. And I do recognize that, that it gets very easy for us to get locked in our past ways of operating. So uh, I do try to look at what are the pain points. Like, again, instead of saying I want to be a great speaker, to me that's the wrong question. It's like how do I have the longest impact that I can with a client without me necessarily having to be there all of the time? Because I came from the world of consulting. So I'm always looking at the questions and the problems I'm solving. I spent a lot of time in hot tubs and because uh, I find that just that, that relaxation, whether it's meditative or something like that, that helps me clear my mind a lot. So I'm, I'm really trying to just make sure I'm not, you know, everybody, there's the expression in Silicon Valley about eating your own dog food. Well, I try not to eat my own dog food. I try not to believe my own hype. I try not to get too caught up in what I believe to be true. And I try to really just understand what's missing in the market and try to think about ways of solving that in ways that nobody else has. That is a great mindset and a great attitude to come from. I know that you are a voracious learner. What are three of the best books you've ever read that have had the most impact on your work, and you can't quote any of the five books you wrote? <laughs> yes, those would not be on my list. Uh, I would say one book, surprisingly, because it has, it's not a business book at all. In fact, I'm not sure business books are the ones that have had the greatest impact in my business, but I would say one is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, uh, written by R Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist, I laugh out loud funny, and to me it is the, it is just a great example of a genius, I mean literally a genius who is also ridiculously creative in the way that he solves problems, and I, I recommend that book to everyone. Uh, so that's certainly number one on my list. Uh, I, I would say that from a personal perspective, I always love Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl just because I think that when we look at the work we do in our lives and the purpose that we have, it's, it's really that meaning that we either give it or create for it that, that has us get up out of bed and want to do what we do. And So it's not a reality. It's a, it's a self-declared meaning. So I love that book. And I would actually say, and instead of a particular book, I would say a particular genre. I read a lot of mysteries, uh, Sherlock Holmes books, I, I, things of that nature, because I think that the process of having to solve mysteries uh, is a great way to train the brain to look at the world a little differently. And so I love mysteries. I love uh, lateral brain teaser books. I love anything which really just forces the brain to solve problems in maybe a slightly different way than we're used to. Excellent ideas, excellent books. Um, what is, what do you attribute, I mean, you've had such an incredible career and it seems like you just keep warming up for the next act. What is, what do you attribute your success to? A fair amount of luck. As I said before, I, I really do think that I got lucky in choosing a topic that would ultimately become very popular, and I chose it before it became popular. So I do think that's part of it. I think getting to know some of the right people, I think that's been, and to me it's all about relationships. 
and you know what I did at Accenture was very helpful. And uh, I, I think since then I've gotten to know people. I get out there. I try to attend conferences, not necessarily to learn, but to meet people. I mean, you and I met at a conference, and to me that that is really what I'm most interested in is the people that attend conferences less so than the content that's presented. And I really just try not to be complacent with anything that I've developed. I mean, I, you know, I'm always replacing my website. Uh, our new website's going up probably in about a week or two weeks, uh, depending on how everything goes. And I just launched the last one, you know, about a year and a half ago. And so I'm always just saying, what, what's next? What's next? What can I create? We're launching a new e-learning course. That's coming out probably within the next couple of weeks, three weeks or so. And I'm always, and I, I think actually the real key is in partnerships. What I realize is I can't do everything. Uh, so what I need to do is find people who do what they do exceptionally well. And I put my trust, my faith in their hands. And I develop partnerships that ideally don't cost me a lot of money. So I try not to spend too much money uh, of my own money getting something developed. But I'd rather have someone else who becomes excited about my vision of how to create something, they're willing to create it and then they take a slice of it. So my upfront money might be uh, a lot less out of my pocket, but in the long run, I think I do much better. I would say that your long run has definitely proven that to be true and uh, that business model is working incredibly well for you. What, um, what should I have asked you that I haven't thought of? Oh, okay. Uh, what else do you want our well, listeners I, to know? Well, I, I guess I, I, one of the things which I'm a, a big believer in, and it'll come back to something that I said before, which is expertise is the enemy of innovation. I think here's the problem that I think most people have when it comes to professional development. is They spend way too much time in their area of expertise. So we go to conferences, we read books, we watch videos, and we hang out with people who are similar to us. They're in the, pretty much the same field. And I talk about this concept called purposeful tangents. And purposeful tangents are basically where you learn from people who aren't in your area of expertise, but they're tangential, they're adjacent. So for example, you know, I've spent the last 20 plus years working in the field of innovation, but I don't, I don't attend innovation conferences. Uh, I speak at them, but I don't attend them because to me, I've not seen a lot of innovation in the world of innovation over the past 20 years. And so I spent a lot of my time studying neuroscience, studying psychology, studying sports performance, and my latest love is magic. So I've really dedicated a good percentage of my spare time to studying magic, studying the way magicians operate. They're all about making the impossible possible. They're all about misdirection. And all the things that magicians do is really what innovators need to do. And so I would encourage people to think about Instead of spending all your time with people who are doing exactly what you're doing, find these purposeful tangents, people who are doing work that's adjacent to, similar to what you're doing, but not the same. That is great advice. Fascinating interview. I've got tons of notes here. I'm sure our listeners do too. Um, let's have them, for our listeners who want to learn more about what you're doing, I believe the gamification, the website, the first website you mentioned was 30dayinnovationchallenge.com. Is that correct? That's correct. That's 33-0. So 30-day innovation challenge. Uh, we'll take you to the game. If you want to learn about personality poker, you go to personalitypoker.com. And if you just want to learn about me, my other books, and everything else, it would be steveshapiro.com. Uh, and that will give you everything that you want to, to know about me. 
All right, Stephen, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We greatly appreciate your very valuable time. Thank you again, Stephen, for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Seth. Thanks so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>